title of this message is uh, The Word Etched on Our Heart. I am truly blessed to say that we in this congregation have a large number, large percentage of our congregation are veterans who have chosen to serve this nation in the pursuit of freedom. On Veterans Day, we honor the men and women who chose to protect and preserve our freedom from those who would oppress us. On Memorial Day, we honor those who gave their lives in the pursuit of freedom. Freedom has allowed this nation to rise faster and further than any other nation in history. Freedom will also ultimately be responsible for our demise. Freedom is, after all, the God-given right to choose. The spirit of a man or woman will always dream. Freedom allows us to pursue those dreams. America has come to hold her freedom cheap. We have traded it as a bobble, a piece of costume jewelry, if you will. Our inheritance was traded for a mess of pottage. In the last election, the so-called red wave that was predicted revealed itself more like a pinkish ripple. In exit polls, I mean, I, I've just been in all this this week. My, my mind is numb, boggled. In exit polls, many Democrats expressed that they were unhappy with the present condition of our nation. That was on one hand. On the other hand, they felt compelled to vote for the same people who are responsible for that condition. And they were compelled by a single fear. It was their belief, and this is what they articulated, it was their belief that if Republicans got in office, that the, quote, right unquote, of a woman to obtain an abortion would be taken away. That is why they voted the way they did. Never mind that that's not even possible presently. But this was framed as a threat to democracy. That's, that's why our president was harping on this. Republicans are a threat to democracy, democracy equaling the right to abort a child. So essentially, the right to kill our progeny held sway over all other considerations, over the economy, over the fiasco at the border, the lack of drilling for our energy needs. Everything else took a back seat to the, quote, right 
to kill an unwanted child. One, one woman was profound. Her statement was, an unwanted child is a burden forever. Poverty is only a temporary condition. Again, the whole week, my mind has just been numb with these kinds of statements. I, these are not stupid people. They're not, well, let me retract. They're not, no, there's a difference between stupid and ignorant. Ignorant is, ignorance is fixed easily. Information. There's many things I am ignorant of and no longer, I don't remain ignorant, I look it up. Stupid. Wow, that go clear to the bone. You can't fix stupid. Stupid has knowledge, just refuses to act on it. And if there is any condition that identifies our society, that is it. Reality no, no longer plays any role in the decision-making process of the people who are in charge. Their conclusions and fixes for so-called problems simply aren't going to work, period. They are useless gestures. Liberty is the freedom to choose. And we have chosen poorly in this nation. And there will be consequences. There are consequences presently, and they're going to get significantly worse. Gird up your loins. This is not, I'm not propagating fear, I'm propagating reality. We have a certain situation, and it's not getting better. In fact, it's getting worse. We have chosen killing our children over all other considerations. That is a poor choice. The, the desire to be free compelled me for much of my youth. Over the course of a decade or so, I was led on a journey of many thousands of miles in pursuit of the concept of freedom. Of course, my concept of freedom was a little different than what freedom actually is. In Idaho, I learned a very valuable lesson that has served me well over the course of my life. Freedom provides me with the choice, the freedom, the ability to choose who I'm going to serve. It's not, I used to think freedom was I can do anything I want. No. Freedom gives me a choice to choose who I'm going to serve. Many in my generation pursuing that word and that concept came to this understanding. Bob Dylan sang about it. You gotta serve somebody. No, no man is an island. No man is the sovereign of his own life. He is affected by circumstances, by a society that surrounds him. That truth set me free. And the peace that came with accepting that concept 
was beyond all understanding. The choice was simple. It's the choice that was spoken about by God to, to Adam in the, in the garden, the one set before Israel at Sinai. It's the same choice. If I choose to serve God, Romans 6, I am a slave to righteousness. And if I choose not to serve God, I am a slave to sin. The only real choice I have is who I'm going to serve. Once that choice is made, the rest of the choices fall in line. I am very content and joyful that I chose life and blessing over death and cursing. And although I have all too often defaulted on my end of the bargain, God is not a man that he should lie, and he has always supplied everything that I have needed to live. Or to put it in the more cowboy vernacular, I ain't never been dead yet. In 1776, America rejected the idea, the concept of a sovereign, and we sought to be free, to get out from under an all-powerful king. Within the kingdom of men, earthly kings are rarely benevolent. They are often impetuous, bad-tempered, abusive, and subject to wide mood swings. They resemble capricious and petulant children, only they have the power of life and death. I am quite happy that America rose up and overthrew those who oppressed us. We gained much. We also lost much. When we revolted against the authority of the king, we lost the concept of a king. And that entire concept, no one in this room has any understanding of what that means. It's, it's one of the reasons I am not in favor of a constitutional convention. Because no one alive today, it's not that we don't have the intellect in our society to produce a document of a similar statute to the Constitution of the United States. It's that no one in our society has lived under that kind of an authoritarian rule, and so we're less likely to produce a document that protects us from that kind of authoritarian rule. When we revolted, we were now all equal. No one was above the Lord. No one was better than anyone else. That is not the way it is in the kingdom. The problem with that is God describes himself as king. And we do not understand what that means. King is sovereign. All power and all authority reside in him. Once he speaks, there is no further appeal. His word is law. We don't understand that. If we don't like what the king does, there's no higher authority to appeal to. We can't vote him out. We can't take him to court 
and get his decisions overturned? We are his subjects. When the king speaks, he doesn't require that I understand what he says. Nor is he interested in whether or not I like what he says. He simply requires my obedience, period. I am his subject, a slave to him. In history books, it's called the king-vassal relationship. You got the king, and then you got the vassal. He's a slave. Last week I exegeted Exodus chapter 24. That was done in depth. I will, in a superficial fashion, recall some of the th words that I spoke. The etymology of the word sapphire implies a more profound meaning than simply sapphire. Sapphire comes from the same root as sofer, to write or to, to, to have a, a scroll, a book. The one who writes that, that scroll is called a sofer, a scribe, the one who writes. And I pointed out that some of my people understand the floor in the vision that was given to us in Exodus 24 of God sitting above this sapphiric floor. This, this vision was understood differently and more profoundly than just a floor of sapphire, a bluish tinted floor. Many of the more profound sages of my people see this, that floor, as saphir, a scroll that was spread out upon which God's feet rested. And that the words of this heavenly scroll are written in black fire upon white fire, very similar to the reflection of that scroll, which is black ink written on a white piece of of parchment. That parchment is actually painted. It's not the natural color. It's painted a white or whitewashed and then the black ink. And they believe it to be Sefer, uh, Sefer Torah, the, the scroll of the, of the law. And those words written in, in black fire are a gateway to the white, brilliant fire of the divine presence that exists just on the other side of those words. If you want to see God, read his word. Interestingly, the words of God heard by man were not originally recorded using ink and parchment. That came later. The ten words that God spoke and that we heard at the base of Sinai were first carved into stone tablets. And the more astute sages of my people observed the difference between words written in ink on parchment and words carved into rock. The words written in ink do not become part of the parchment. They remain on the surface that where they can be altered, worn away, eroded. They can be intentionally removed 
with a razor, a sharp object, you can actually scrape off the words of Torah. They're brittle. The words carved into rock become part of the rock. To remove those words, you have to actually remove the rock. Those words are part of. God gave two tablets of stone to Moshe with his words carved into them by his own finger. And he would also inform us that these same words were etched into the fleshly tablets of our hearts in that Torah. The commandments written on our hearts are not superficial. They are not written on, but rather carved into those fleshy tablets. They become part of us. Paul shares this ancient understanding. This, this understanding has been around before, much longer than Yeshua's physical manifestation. Before Yeshua was born, this understanding was there. Paul shares it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. He describes believers as an epistle, a letter that is written by Messiah to others. You are an epistle. And then he describes this letter, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in tablets that are in the hearts of flesh. The same words carved into stone at, at Sinai were carved into my heart, your heart. Words that are not external, but rather words that live on the inside of us. As with Israel, we have no need to send someone across the sea to, to grab uh, God's word and to bring it back to us and speak his words and put them in our ears so that we may hear and we may do. The word of God is nigh unto you. It's near. It's in your heart. The word of the Lord provides us with the most accurate and intimate representation of God we can apprehend in the physical form. He reveals his mind within the context of those words. We are told of God's role in creation. Revealed in these words are the first and optimal relationship he had with the pinnacle of his creation, mankind. Within these words, God reveals what he considers good, what he considers evil, what he considers right, what he considers wrong. We are being given the mind of God in God's word. <clears throat> he further reveals what he expects from us. And then he tells us what we can expect from him. As such, the word of the Lord became the focal point of our search to behold the face of God. I've spoken about this scores of times over the last 40 years. First time I read Psalm 24 and Psalm 27, I searched for the face of God because that's a command. 
You said, Lord, search, seek my face. Your face, Lord, I will seek, Psalm 24. Every morning I wake early. I pray very little. I rarely pray for myself. God knows what I have need of before I ask. The things I pray for will kill me. Graveyard dead, I know it. Still want a Lamborghini, but that car will go way faster than I can drive. I don't pray a lot. I don't ask God for things in the morning. I immerse myself in his word and seek to behold him. Because that, right on the other side of those, of that black fire, is that white, luminescent presence of God. I'm trying to see that, that black fire is a gate and if I can find my way past it, I found what I've sought. The word of the Lord has become the focal point for the Jewish people in our search to behold the face of God. And eventually, we came to understand the word of the Lord was alive, a living entity. The Targumim, which were Aramaic translations of the Hebrew scriptures, specifically the Torah, they were produced in the intertestamental period between the last prophet of Tanakh and the beginning of the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant. And they have, it's less of a translation and more of a paraphrase. And they have a very peculiar and mysterious phrase that is throughout the Targumim. The God of Scripture who is revealed is rarely referred to as God. He's referred to as Memna Hashem, the Word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord that brooded, the Spirit of God that brooded over the deep in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 is translated Memra Hashem, the Word of the Lord. It was the Word of the Lord that cried out in the garden, Ayeka, where are you? It was the Word of the Lord that Jacob wrestled with. Both Jacob and Moshe swore oaths to the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord that appeared on Sinai and delivered the word of the Lord to those who were gathered there. Now in English this gets a little convoluted. It gets a little uh, confusing because it's still the same phrase, the word of the Lord. But in Hebrew and in Aramaic, this becomes more clear. In English, excuse me, in Hebrew, the word Devar Elohim is the word of the Lord, meaning the written word of the Lord. Memra Hashem 
is the living word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that is alive, that speaks, that hears. Okay, we still have that concept in the body of Messiah. We have the written word of God. And then there's a living word of God that speaks to us. God has not stopped. He has not ceased to speak with his people. We call that the living word of the Lord. Well, not too far away from what my people call it. Memra Hashem, the word of the Lord, the living word. I believe it's an onkelos, his targum. My people see the living word of God appearing in the written word as also a, re a rather mysterious type of figure. He is called Malach Panav, which literally means the messenger of the face. In our Bibles, it's translated as the angel of the presence. God's face, presence, etc. Isaiah 63, verse 9, speaks of this mysterious messenger, this angel of the face of God. In all their affliction, the angel of the face was afflicted, and the angel of the face saved them. In his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. And he lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah 63, God is transmitting words to us that are almost exactly the same as what he conveys in Isaiah 53. He took upon himself my affliction, my iniquity. He redeemed me. He is my Goel, Goeli, my redeemer. Same concept in both those chapters. The Memra Hashem and the angel of the face are the same manifestation of God. It was this one who became the redeemer of Israel. He took our affliction, and he himself was afflicted in a similar fashion, and he carried us through the days of old. This glorious one is known by a, another title as well, Mashiach. Psalm chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed ones, saying, let us break their bonds and cast away their cords from us. The anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. That's what it means. The word of the Lord, the angel of the face, the Mashiach are all terms that reveal that part of God revealed to man. We cannot behold the fullness of God and live. He's infinite. We are finite. We are consumed within that presence. There has to be either a limitation of his presence or a barrier between his presence and us. Otherwise, we are consumed, like the sons of Aaron. I believe Yeshua identifies himself as the messenger of the face in John chapter 14 verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. What is Yeshua's response? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the angel of the face. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the face of God. One of the most profound sages of my people was a man named Yochanan. He's the one I just quoted from. Yochanan wrote an account of the one he believed to be the Mashiach, the Redeemer, the Word of the Lord. And he opens up his account with the same words that introduce the scriptures in the beginning. Bereshus. Bereshit means in the beginning. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What word is he referring to? Hamemra Hashem, the word of the Lord. The Lord, through Yochanan, is affirming these ancient Jewish thoughts on him. John chapter 1, verse 3 reveals that it was the word of the Lord that brought forth creation that manifested the creation physically and nothing was created apart from him. He is the one who brought creation into being. It was Yeshua who walked with Adam in the garden. It was Yeshua who first called Avram to be the father of many nations. It was Yeshua with whom Yaakov wrestled. It was Yeshua who spoke the ten words at Sinai. It was Yeshua who appeared in the tent of the meeting in such a glorious presence that all the priests there couldn't even stand to minister. It was Yeshua who would reveal himself in the same way in Solomon's temple. And all the priests fell over because they couldn't stand the quantity and the quality of the presence of God that appeared there. And in the fullness of time, it was the word of the Lord, Yeshua, who appeared to Israel in her affliction 2,000 years ago. The one who took that affliction upon himself and showed us grace and mercy, just as he did in Isaiah 63, and he redeemed me. Here is revealed a single strand of light that connects all the words of God. Other messengers came down and heaven revealed the name of this beacon of divine light. He revealed that name, Yeshua, for he will save his people. All the debates of man over who Yeshua was, what he was supposed to do, his relationship to the Father, etc., 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 ad nauseum over the last 2,000 years are little more than distractions for me. They occupied my time when I was younger. But I am wiser now. I don't pretend to understand all the mechanics of this relationship. I don't pretend to understand the fullness of it. Here's what I know. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what I know. When the living Word of God revealed Himself to me, the ancient words that were written upon the tablets of my heart, they began, they were set ablaze. They began to glow. And the holy fire of those words, they quickened my soul. They made me alive. The righteousness of God was revealed on the inside of me. Not out there. Here, inside. His words etched into those fleshy tablets of my heart have compelled the choices I've made since I first beheld the messenger of the face. But it is not my obedience to his words written on that heart that is the most profound testimony of God's presence within me. It's not my obedience. Remarkably, it is my reaction to those times when I have the, followed the desires of my flesh rather than the desires of God. Those are the times that reveal the existence of God within me more profoundly. When I stray from that righteous path as I delved into the word in far greater depth last week, that straight path, when I diverge from that path, my reaction to that diversion is what reveals the presence of God within me. I am undone. Sadness overcomes me. Embarrassment, humiliation. I'm torn apart. And all I desire to do is to return to the path, that straight path that leads to God. The last days we'll see men fighting against the Lord and his Mashiach. Certainly we have beheld some of that. What are they trying to do? Break the ties that bind. What are those ties? The words written on our hearts. The words that tie us to the one who first spoke them. The one whose finger etched them into those tablets. I suspect we are in those times presently. The fight against those words has just become vicious at this point. A fight that reveals us desiring the death of our own progeny over the blessings that God has given us. Hear the voice of the words that are carved within you. They speak. And may you find the strength to walk in the ways of wisdom. 
Father, in Yeshua's name, we give praise and glory to you. You truly never abandon us, for your words are carved within us. They're with us. Here we go. Where shall I run? I can't escape those words. They constantly speak. Strengthen us in these days of darkness, in these days of delusion, in these days of deception. That the word that is written on our hearts, that the word that lives within us, that we might see light in the light of those words. And that light, may that light guide us on the path that leads to your throne. Lord, show your people mercy. You are afflicted in similar fashion. Yet you never strayed from that path. Imbibe us with the same power that we might walk carefully in these days of danger. In Yeshua's name, amen.